terminology matters. Sometimes we use big words, sometimes they're not as big words, but we use words because terminology matters. And so it's interesting that we use a lot of interchangeable terminology. We talk about the Holy Spirit, which equals the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost equals the Holy Spirit. Or as we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, and I get this question all the time, the Catholic Church equals universal church. So we affirm that we believe in one Catholic church, lowercase c, not the Roman Catholic church, but the universal church. Or Christ, that equals Messiah. We also talk about the Bible's meta-narrative or the Bible's big picture. The Bible's big picture is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or consummation. We've also talked about the creation or cultural mandate as part of the covenant of life or covenant of works. And then sometimes we use Greek or Latin terms that get thrown in to describe a biblical or theological reality, like the proto-euangelion or the proto-evangelium, if it's Latin. And it means the first gospel. It's what we saw back in Genesis 3.15, that first announcement of an offspring of woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And that indeed is Christ, the offspring who crushes the serpent. So why is terminology important? We use words taken right from Scripture, like justification or salvation, and also theological words developed over time to describe all that the Bible says, like trinity or evangelism or gospel, which is Old English for good news. Creeds and confessions and catechisms that have been developed in order to have particular phrases to clarify what is true from what is false. So that we can say that Jesus is fully God and fully man in two distinct natures, but one person forever. Or that the three persons of the Trinity are the same in substance, equal in power and glory or sin as any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Good terminology helps us to define what we believe distinct from what we don't believe because it's false. But there's also particular terminology in other spheres of life, like the world of sports. Otherwise, you hear people say things like, well, how many touchdowns did they score in the hockey match? Hmm? Or in the world of music, hey, let's play that piece in J-sharp minor. Or in shopping, BOGO, right? Buy one, get one, except for all the things that don't apply. Government, education, mathematics all have particular terminology, and students who have recently turned in papers know about bibliographies that had a particular form that had to be followed. The technical precision of terms and forms can be exhausting. Amen, students, yes? But they are important to show the difference between what is true from what is false. And so in these December sermons, we've been looking at the Bible's big picture, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or consummation. And that's what we're going to look at today. Most of the Bible is the history of redemption. And so the Bible is sometimes referred to as redemptive history. It's different than American history or world history. It is redemptive history. Today, we look at the account of consummation, which is especially given in the book of Revelation. The Greek word for revelation is where we get the word apocalypse. And often when we think about apocalypse, we only think about the end times. 
But the word apocalypse really means revelation. And so all of the Bible is apocalypse. All the Bible is revelation. And so this morning, we get to read of God's revelation. Before we do, let's go to him in prayer. Our God, you are indeed the God of revelation. You are God who has not been silent, but a God who has spoken and spoken abundantly throughout the ages and various times and in various manners and have seen to it that your word that has been revealed has been preserved so that we have such ready access to it right now. Give us an excitement about the possibility of opening up uh, to your word and having your word opened up to us. May your spirit then come and bear witness to the reading of your word and the proclamation of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, in the last three weeks, from the opening chapters of the Bible, from Genesis 1 through 6, we saw the revelation of the creation and fall and redemption, really the beginning of redemption. And in these last two chapters, we see the conclusion of restoration, the consummation. We tend to use the word restoration when we are talking about the restoration work on earth, some of which is certainly already happening. That which was broken by the fall is restored. It's made better than new. And we tend to use the word consummation to refer to Christ's kingdom completed in his second coming, the fulfillment of all the promises at Christ's return. One more set of words then as we dig into Revelation 21 and 22. When we talk about the kingdom of Christ, we use words inauguration, continuation, and consummation. In his first coming, Christmas, as we celebrate this time of year, we celebrate the inauguration of Christ's kingdom reign, that Christ has come and by his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, his kingdom has had the inauguration. He is on his throne so that right now we live in a time of the continuation of Christ's kingdom, the church's ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ into every aspect of life and existence, the Holy Spirit applying the redemption accomplished by Christ. And so there's a restoration at work that happens in that continuation of the gospel ministry. But ultimately, we are looking forward to the consummation of Christ's kingdom when he returns and brings the final restoration to everything. Revelation 21 and 22, in particular, spell out these final pieces. So let's look at these one chapter at a time, beginning with Revelation 21 and the description of God making everything new. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost. From the spring of the water of life, he who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There are three great gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide, measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold is pure glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was a pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because... The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, there are so many things that could be said about that chapter. I'm just going to focus on two. The New Jerusalem, and before that, the Kainos New. Kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S, is the Greek word that's here translated new throughout this passage. The ordinary Greek word is neos, from which we get the English word new, and also where we get that prefix neo that gets attached to all kinds of things, like a neophyte, someone who is new at a skill or subject. Or, and you don't usually want to hear this from your doctor, about a neoplasm, a new growth of tissue that's especially characteristic of cancer. So it's that simple word that simply means new, but hynos while it means new, means new in the sense of replacing the old, better 
than the old. Hebrews 8 uses this word to say, behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It is Christmas. And at Christmas, as we exchange gifts, some of those gifts will be new things, something you've never had before. But some of those will be new things to replace an older version, right? An old one that perhaps got worn out or broke, or in the case of technology, gets updated. And so there's a sense in which Neos new looks forward, something brand new that you've never had before. But Kainos new looks forward and backward at the same time. It's retrospective and new at the same time. Kainos is the typical word for new throughout the book of Revelation. As we see the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, sing the new song and speak of the new covenant that's superior to the old covenant, but yet they're still related. The new earth that is superior to the old earth, and yet the new earth and old earth are still related. So that as we think about eternity in the new heaven and new earth, we're not meant to think of something that's completely new, has never seen before, but connected to what we have now, but so much better. And why is it better? Verse 4. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so to be clear, we're not simply talking about an update, the newest iPhone, which will be updated again before you figure out how to use the current one. Or updates that aren't really better, just cost more, or are just different for the sake of being different, or maybe a few things are updated, but it's, the rest is still the same. Verse 5 says, he was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. And so this is not simply going back to the condition of Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden. Like those who say, they just want to go back to the way things used to be. No, we don't. Nobody wants to go back to the days before air conditioning. The days of party line telephones attached to a wall. You don't want that, right? The days of outhouses. We don't want that. We like indoor plumbing. That's a good thing. The difference is highlighted in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, but after the fall, man was separated from God. And so part of God's redemptive work by his covenant of grace was to have a temple built that he could dwell with his people. But that wasn't close enough. So God came in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet that was limited to time and space. And so God has come in the Holy Spirit to dwell in our very hearts. The new earth is a return to the intimacy of the Garden of Eden, but better. As we see in the part of this chapter, especially at verse, beginning at verse 9, the vivid description of the new Jerusalem. And in this description, we get answers to big questions like, why did God create the universe? Why did he ordain sin to enter the universe? Why does he allow sin to continue? Why is he working so slowly? 
What we see here is that God created the universe to prepare a bride for his son so that the Redeemer could demonstrate his great love to the redeemed and celebrate his love forever and ever. The redeemed then come from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The redeemed, this great multitude. It's why the New Jerusalem described in verses 12 through 14 are 12 angels on 12 gates with the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 foundations of the names of the 12 apostles. It's the New Jerusalem made up of all the redeemed of God's elect from the sealed saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament, all who call on Christ as Savior and Lord. The Old Testament church and the New Testament church in heaven together, one city forever and ever. We will not live in the New Jerusalem. We are the New Jerusalem. And then verses 15 and 16 that give this description about the vast number that make up the redeemed in a vast city that measures 12,000 stadia in length. And that word stadia is where we get our word stadium, refers to the measure of length for a track race. And so the stadium uh, is about the same distance as from Butler to Colorado or Butler to Miami, Florida. Notice though that the stadium is as long as it is wide and high, the perfect cube in each direction. It recalls the cube of the most holy place, the holy of holies, the innermost room of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was placed and God himself dwelt among the people. But here we notice the difference. In the Old Testament temple, each court entering uh, the the, temple Torah, the, the Holy of Holies, filtered people out so that only one person, the high priest, and only one day per year, the Day of Atonement, could actually enter into God's presence. And yet, it was even then God's veiled presence because sin had so separated us from him. But in the new Jerusalem, we all dwell in the unveiled Holy of Holies, no longer separated from God. God lives with us. That's what we anticipate in the consummation of the kingdom. God lives with us. And so verse 22 says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God lives with us. All of this, which was inaugurated in the first advent, is consummated in the second advent, the second coming of Christ. If you think Christmas is exciting, what about the second Christmas, the second advent? Listen to the excitement in the last chapter of the Bible. Listen to God's word. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servant the things that must soon take place. 
Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. He said to me, not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right and let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside, are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the roots and the offspring of David and the morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. In many ways, the amen, the end, brings us to the beginning. Creation echoed in the new creation to come. God created the heaven and earth. Revelation describes the new heaven and the new earth. God created the sun, moon, and stars. Revelation tells us there will be no more night. We'll not need the light of a lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God will give us light to reign forever and ever. Genesis describes the cunning and power of the devil. Revelation sees Satan hurled into the lake of fire. Genesis describes paradise lost through sin. Revelation describes paradise restored with the river of life flowing from God's throne and restored access to the tree of life. Genesis pictures fallen man fleeing from God, hiding from his presence. Revelation shows the restored communion between the Almighty and the redeemed. Eternity is not just creation restored, but infinitely better because we now know the fullness of God's love for us that he not only created us in his image, but has redeemed us by his own sacrificial love. And that gives us shape for the ministry of the gospel. Where we see the effects of sin, we apply sacrificial love to promote redemption and restoration. Wherever there is brokenness, in our schools, communities, families, marriages, government, businesses, 
physical, mental illnesses. Wherever there is brokenness, we apply sacrificial love to promote redemption and restoration. And so verse 3 tells us that at the consummation of Christ's kingdom, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. We'll see his face, his name on our foreheads. Jesus wins and we win with him so that we are in communion with him for all eternity. If you don't want to be with the Lord, then you don't want to be in heaven or the new earth. The picture given in these final chapters is filled with rich imagery of something better than can be described. Central to the city is the throne, the source of life, the throne of God and the land, the source of the river that supplies the water. So that the emphasis is not so much on the river, but on life. Life surges forth throne of both God and the Lamb. Two persons, but not two gods, occupying the same throne. And to emphasize life further, we read, on either side of the river of life stood the tree of life. And so it's really depicted as this row of trees that's presented collectively as the tree of life. God planted the tree of life along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. After the fall, cherubim guarded the tree of life with a flaming sword, but in the garden of the holy city, the tree of life is no longer guarded. We have restored access. Hold that in your mind and heart as you consider that good news that Jesus is coming. Behold, I am coming soon. Does that truth transform you? If you hear, behold, I am coming soon, and all you can think is, okay, and you're missing out. D.B. Warfield, the greatest of, or the last of the great Princeton theologians, wrote, it is surely not all right with the spiritual condition of that man who can busy himself daily with divine things, with a cold and impassive heart. The true believer excitedly says, come. The bride of Christ, the church of true believers, says with the spirit, come. John was transformed as he received the revelation. We are to be transformed as we receive the revelation. The time is near. It's now. It's time for the decision. Will you behold Christ? Will you keep the word of God? Will you employ the means of grace? Will you minister the gospel? The Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, would say, Oh, that Christians would learn to live with one eye on Christ crucified and the other on his coming in glory, that we might see the city of God full at Christ's return, the city of God that already exists in part. Christ's first coming has brought the city of God in part, the inauguration of Christ's kingdom reign. He's coming in the consummation of his kingdom to fully implement the city of God. And we are working now in the continuation period of his kingdom toward us. So the closing verses, 12 through 21, are this restatement of everything in rapid fire sequence with a repeated invitation to come to Jesus, such that all who have come to Jesus want for nothing more than Jesus to come back and consummate his kingdom, that we might live in communion with God 
forever and ever in fullness. Indeed, may that truth set us free. Amen.